0: Once again, that's Mark twelve twenty eight through 37, found on, found on page 848. Mark 12, verses 28 through 37, found on page 848. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's great to be together. Great to be with you. Really good to see you. Just one announcement before I get going. We're going to start another seminar this fall. Hoping to do three seminars this year. Just basics. Every Christian needs to be able to kind of understand, grow in. So this fall is going to be how to interpret the Bible. Then this winter, we're going to do something on prayer. And then this spring, we'll be thinking about evangelism. So this is an invitation to you. Um, You might think, I'm new to Christianity, or I don't read that much. And you might think, that's not for me. No, it is for you. This is the only qualification. You commit and you come. That's it. That's the only qualification. And I'd rather have four people who commit and come and do their best to be there every time, do a little homework, than more than that who kind of fake it till they make it. No, just come, just commit, you'll grow. These are basic Christian things, so I just want to invite you to that, sign up for that. We'll interpret the Bible together this fall. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so powerful. It's an echo of your power. And so we want to hear from you today. Lord, even in that, as we say that, uh, we're, sometimes we don't want to hear from you. Uh, you, get in, you get in our way get in the way of our own agenda, our own preferences, and so, Lord, we just come and say, help us listen to you. Help us listen to what your word says. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help me to teach this passage faithfully, Uh, and I pray that all of us, Lord, you give us honesty and humility, Lord, to listen to what your word has to say, and that you write it on our hearts, you draw us to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I'm sure you've all heard sayings like these, um, all you need is love. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Or take it a little farther. Hey, all religions are the same. What do they talk about? Love. It's just love, right? Uh, Maybe for some, at first glance, our passage this morning kind of lends itself to that kind of thinking. What, you saw a scribe discover that the main thing, right, the main emphasis of the law is to love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus affirms them for that. You're right. It's a main emphasis. And so some might think, see, all you need is love. Did you notice what else Jesus said there in that passage? It was in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That should be shocking to you. This scribe is a religious professional. He's a theological expert. He knows the scriptures. He appears to be a genuine seeker. He understands an essential biblical reality about the message of love. And yet, I promise you, when he heard this, you're not far from the kingdom of God, he didn't go, oh, thanks, I'm I'm close. Oh, no, he heard, you're not in the kingdom of God. What? How can you say that to me? That's what he would think. According to Jesus, he's not in the kingdom of God. Yeah, he's closer than his counterparts. That's not enough. He's not in. And it's a serious thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? Your religion isn't sufficient. It means uh, you don't really know God in a covenant way, it means you're not forgiven. It means you're not going to enjoy all his great promises. You're not in the kingdom of God. So, according to Jesus, this man, this deeply religious, spiritual man who gets it, it's about love, he needs far more than just biblical ideas about love. How dare Jesus say such things? I mean, it really, it, it really is confrontational, isn't it? How, how dare he say such things to this man? How dare he say such things to the world? That our view of love, our best love, it's, it's not enough. We're continuing our study through the gospel of Mark. And that question, how dare Jesus? Well, that, that question really hits at the heart of the matter. In these final chapters, the heart of the matter is the issue of Authority. Authority. The authority on something, as you know, is the decisive voice, right? Based on knowledge, or uh, influence, or credibility, or power. The authority on something—that's the decisive voice—and the issue of authority is so important. I mean, try to try to imagine some of the most important questions of life: Why are we here? Which religion is true? What is God like? what happens to me when i die why is love important what does it mean to love all of those massive importance well the, those questions of massive importance well here's one more who says who says who's the authority i mean i could have one opinion you could have another opinion who's right who's the authority and i hope you realize there's never not an authority Is never not an authority. You're always choosing one to align yourself with. Every day, every moment, we choose to follow this feeling or that inclination or or this argument. We're choosing an authority. And so, big questions. Is that authority trustworthy? Is it loving? Is it faithful? Will it come through for you in the end? So we're thinking this morning about authority as Jesus describes it. I want to do basically four things. First, just it's probably helpful to remember a little bit of background. Then three points. True authority, surprising authority, loving authority. So some background, then true authority, surprising authority, loving authority. Here we go, background. We're in the last one-third of the Gospel of Mark, which focuses in on the last one week of Jesus' life. So what does that tell you? Right? It's, it's all about this week. Massively important. Uh, at the beginning of the week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the promised king, right? So the people are expecting a king, a Christ. Their scriptures tell them a king's going to come. And they're, they're wondering if it's him, right? The crowds are throwing their robes on the ground before his feet. Uh, they're singing his praises. He's the king. So there's all this anticipation, right? What is it going to be like for him to be king? Is he going to go confront the Roman ruler of the area? Is he going to go confront Pilate? Is he he going to go confront Herod? No, where does he go? He went to the temple. The beginning of the Passover feast, when over a million people have come from all over the world, he goes to the temple. What does he do? He shuts it down. Shocking, surprising. He shuts it down. He overturns tables Casts out corrupt money changers, people using religion to make money. Puts a pause on all the, scr- all the sacrifices and begins to teach the people who are just hanging on his every word. And it's like this whole week he's saying, this is my temple. I have the authority. And man, that is amazing authority. Well, the religious leaders, the powers that be, they, they chafe at his claim of authority, right? They, they hate him. We can understand why. Because it threatens and exposes theirs. And so Mark tells us, right? It shows us over and again. The religious authorities want Jesus dead. They want to dispose of him, but they can't because the crowds are hanging on his every word. So here's a strategy. What do we do? Well, let's try to discredit Jesus with the crowds. If we can come up with the right question, the right argument, and make Jesus look like the fool in front of the crowds, then his power with them will diminish and we can do with them as we please. And so we've watched week after week as they as they have tried and failed miserably. The Pharisees tried and failed in thirteen to seventeen. The Sadducees 18 to 27. With every effort, they look more and more foolish, while Jesus looks more and more compelling. And the crowds are amazed. So all their plans are backfiring. That leads us to where we are in our text this morning. Matthew 20, 22. Matthew chapter 22 kind of gives us the environment. Here's Matthew 22, 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So Matthew's account of this moment tells us the Pharisees are grouping up for one more shot, one more effort at discrediting Jesus. One more question to test him and hopefully discredit him with the crowds. So what's their question? Well, which is the great commandment in the law? Why would, why would they ask that of all things? And here's probably the best guess. Many times throughout Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees feel like he's undermining the law. Like, do you remember, for instance, he heals on the Sabbath. So it seems to them that he doesn't have the respect for the Mosaic law that he should. And so they're hoping, as they ask him this question, they're hoping he'll say something that kind of undermines Moses and his authority, undermines the law, and then he will be discredited with the crowd. That's what they're looking for. So that's where we are, the Pharisees giving it one more shot. And yet this situation is, is different from the others, because Mark shows us something unique about this specific scribe. Mark chapter 12:28. One of the scribes came up, heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So we, so we see here, it's the first time Mark has shown us a scribe who's not hostile to Jesus. He's not antagonistic to Jesus. He's actually impressed with Jesus. His respect for Jesus is growing as he's listened to Jesus answer these questions. And so now he comes, it seems, genuinely asking what is an incredibly important question, Which commandment is most important of all? That's the background. Now our first point, the true authority. Which commandment is most important of all? So this is a question of fundamentals. You know, by the count of the scribes and Pharisees, there were 613 commands in the Torah. So if you guys want to go read that for me this afternoon, count them up. Yeah, we'll weigh your answer in theirs. And they said, you know, there's 248 positive commands and 365 negative commands, so you got what you need, right? One negative command for each day of the year. They talked about things like that, and they believed that some were lesser and some were greater, so they would kind of rank the commands, all 613 of them. But here's this question. It, when you think about it, it is an important question. It, it's the idea of like a, a guiding principle. Is there one principle or truth that Ties them all together. Do they have an order and a function and a purpose? What's at the heart of it all? And you see Jesus answering quickly, clearly. He actually finds uh, merit to the question. He thinks the question is important. He's going to give you an answer. So here it is. He quotes from Deuteronomy six, verse. This is Mark twelve twenty nine. Jesus answered. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. We need to unpack this for a moment, don't we? What does Jesus think is the most important aspect or principle of all the commands. And you know, it begins differently than you might think, right? If if we'd asked one another, hey, what's the most important command? You you probably would have said, and you're, you're not exactly wrong, you probably would have said love. But did you hear what Jesus said first? The first, the most important is, did you see it, verse 29? The most important is hear. Isn't that a different angle? If you say love first, it's about you and your understanding and your action. But no, the first, actually, it begins like this. Hear. Listen. Before you love, listen. Before you do, listen. I think that's incredibly important. Because at the heart of this first command is is first to recognize and respond to a person who has spoken to you spoken to you. And what's the message? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Israel lived in a pluralistic society. And this is what they had to deal with all throughout their history, right? In the ancient world, it's it's polytheistic. And so if you want good crops, you've got one God for that. If you want some fertility, you got another God for that. If you need help with a war or your business, you got another God for that. This God for that need will go to whoever treats us best. Pluralistic And so the message of God's revelation is, no, 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 that's all garbage. There's one God, period. And he is the one you look to to meet all your needs. He's all-encompassing. It's all his. He's supreme. There's one God. So in a similar similar way, we can relate, can't we? Uh, Maybe your friends don't have idols all through their living room, as in like statues. But we are in a pluralistic moment, aren't we? This religion, that religion, this opinion, that opinion, and actually, kind of the value of our cultural moment is: hey, you can in, you can invent this for yourself, uh, whichever one you feel like is true for you. That's cool, right? Have you heard people say this? Well, that, that's, um, as long as your religion helps you. So it's not like there's one encompassing truth. It's more like: does it does it give you comfort? You know, does it help meet your needs? As long as it does that, that's that's fine. Pluralistic. Pick whatever you, you want. Invent it if necessary. Here's the truth according to Jesus. It was true then, it's true now. There's one God. Period. And he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And he's the creator of all things. And he calls people to himself. He actually makes a covenant relationship with them. It's so profound. Friends, you hear this? According to Jesus, truth about God must precede Any thoughtful conversation about love. You don't know what love is until you know who God is. You don't know what love looks like until you've listened to who God is and what He wants. That's why I call this point the true authority. This is the authority on love, the one God who's revealed Himself in His Word. And look what Jesus says, this one God is worthy. That means he deserves your all-encompassing love. I was was just thinking about this idea, right? And I don't know anybody who's ever said, I am anti-love. And you talk about love and the first thing you get is, you know, head nods, yeah, love. Nobody's like, down with love. And yet, in the same moment, we can also say, yeah, I'm all about love, and then we also say, I'm a good person, which means, right, we're inferring there's a standard, and I kept it. And I was wondering, do you think it's, do you think it's valuable, so, so if the standard, I guess we're all sort of agreeing, the standard is love, which means you feel like you're responsible at least somehow in some way to love somebody, isn't that true? Do you think it's ever valid to ask the people you're responsible to love about how well you're doing at actually loving them? (laughs) Okay, this is funny. You all should see this from my perspective right now, because some people are actually looking at other people being like, hmm? (laughs) Fair? So you're resonating. You're resonating. I guess, I guess if I really believed it, right? If I if I thought I should love and, and there was and I there's certain people I should love, I guess sometimes I should actually. It's a terrifying thing to do. <laughs> How am I doing it loving you? Because you see, the whole idea of love makes you responsible to another person. And if you really meant this, you would at least somehow, sometimes, check in. Am I actually loving you the way? I ought. Here's a devastating question. What if you ask God that question? Go ahead and ask Him. Am I loving you, the one who made me, the way that I ought? Do you hear what Jesus said? One God, one love, four times all. All. All, all, all your heart. the idea means, from this, from the core self of who you are, you are enthralled with God. the God of the Bible. Does love, does the love of the God of the Bible flow from your heart? All your soul? I think this emphasizes the seat of the emotions. Does his love ever move you? Are you affected by him and what he says? Moreover, does it disturb you when the God you love is slandered or denied or disobeyed, especially by those who claim to be his people? Do you love him with all your soul? How about this? Do you love him with all your mind? Does the study of God enthrall you? Do you enjoy thinking about him? Do you want to process life in light of him? Do you love to think of him from his word? Then there's all your strength. This is your choosing. This is your doing. Your activity. Do you love him? with your choices. This is is what Jesus says is the fundamental thing. This is what drives Jesus' own life, is to love this one God with all that he is. And so I sit before this text with you. On the one hand, on the one hand, yeah, I want to love you. Pardon me, if you're a Christian, you gotta resonate with this. Oh God, you I wanna love you. And then if you're honest with yourself, you might start crying. The one person you're responsible to love the most, in how many ways have you not done that? Think of your thought life, your relationships. Your work wherever you put him to the side and something else has your love. Jesus adds a second command and he, he speaks of it like it's one command, but there's a second aspect to the man, to this command, because they work intimately and essentially together. Now he quotes from Leviticus and says, You also need to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, yeah, there they can be there's distinctions there, right? They, you can understand both of these things, but in a way they're one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some say, I've heard this many times, first you have to learn to love yourself before you love others. Have you heard that before? I don't know. I think Jesus would say, first you need to love God before you can really love others. Isn't that what he just said? You gotta learn to love God. It's probably better to realize just how much you already do love yourself you're like, preach, okay? That's the most I've, had, I've ever had a crowd agree with me before. You're like, yeah, well, that's good. Uh, in our culture, you're told to. It's like the, the ultimate value, but somehow it skips the first part. Love God with all. In light of that love, love your neighbor as yourself. Think, think of just some categories of ways you love yourself. Attention, attention, mental attention. Aren't you just aware of yourself, pondering yourself, thinking about how you fit in here, there, and everywhere, your future, your interests? You give a lot of attention to yourself. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I'm not saying maybe it's even possible to not do that, but just be aware you do. Attention. Now, look at um, deeds you do for yourself. What did you do for yourself already today? And I'm I'm glad you did it. (laughs) You woke up, you ate, you, you... did hygienic things, uh, you prepped, you, you did all sorts of things, good, you had to, but look, you were, you were caring for yourself, and I think another category to mention is mercy and forgiveness, and I know sometimes we are too hard on ourselves, but I think most of the time we're really good at, you know, giving good reasons as to why we weren't quite what we should have been in this moment or that, Right? You were tired, right, weren't you? Can you believe that guy cut you off on the highway like that? Um, Did you see what those other people did, right? I mean, just look at all them. You give yourself mercy and grace regularly, don't you? There's a reason. There's a reason. Now, if we just took those three ideas, attention, action, and mercy, what would it look like to love your neighbor? As yourself. Attention. Thinking of them. And there are some some words here missing. Like it doesn't say your favorite neighbor. It says your neighbor. If we're going to emphasize what we read in 1 John this morning, especially the emphasis is going to be on your local church. It's your first emphasis on your neighbor. It's not your only emphasis. Church, world, even enemy, right? That's all in there. But your first emphasis is as your local church attention action mercy love your neighbor as yourself again again part of me is like oh that's great i sure like to be loved like that but then another part of me is like i'm exposed i don't want to how often do i not but Jesus says these two commands, intimately woven together to make them basically one. First and primarily, you cannot truly love your neighbor as you ought without a primary love of God from his word. Second and essentially, love for God is often displayed in attentive sacrificial love for your neighbor. And then, you know, you read the law, and it actually pops. Every single law you will ever find is true from the Ten Commandments to everything else. Every single law in there is about either, can you guess, love for God or love for your neighbor. It's true. It's true. The true authority on love is God himself, according to his word. Well, anyway, the scribe is impressed, right? Perhaps he expected something Uh, He expected Jesus to say something questionable, but instead Jesus takes what the scribe would already believe and puts them together in a deeper way than he has ever heard. And so the scribe, you, you hear his response in verses 32 to 33. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one. There's no other besides him. To love him with all the heart, all the understanding, all the strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You get Jesus' response in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I think that part is funny. They've been asking questions to try to discredit Jesus. It's not working. You guys, we, the religious leaders here give up, right? We got, we got to go back to the drawing board. There's got to be a different way to get rid of Jesus because this one's not working. But I'm sitting here thinking, how do they stop here? How does someone in the crowd not go, right? There should be another question. I mean, what's your question? You just heard, yeah, that's right. That's right, the essence is to love God and love your neighbor. And then Jesus says, oh, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Is anybody like, ha? Ah. What do you want to ask how do i get in the kingdom of god this isn't enough what's what are we missing what do we do and they don't ask you know who asks the next question jesus does so in my experience right you you know i did to you today some of you wondered right the two kind of sections, you look at your Bible, it breaks it up into two sections. The two kind of sections are almost never taught together. And probably that's because it takes too long. But see, that's where, that's where I'm special, because I don't care if it takes too long. <laughs> that's, that's why you love me, right? Or, or not love me. I don't care if it takes too long, because they go together. Because this first section, hey, love God, love your neighbor. Oh, you're not far. You can't you can't stop there. And then Jesus takes initiative and he asks the question, but that takes us to the surprising authority. He asks a question nobody's dreaming of that he'll ask. Look what he does in verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So right there in front of these massive crowds Jesus challenges the view of the scribes. And again, they're the theological experts. He wants to challenge them on their view of what the Messiah is like. Right? They all agree, a promised king, he's coming. But there's, what's he like? What should we expect? They expected, right, the son of David. You read through Mark, you read through the New Testament. Son of David, it's synonymous for Christ. So they expect one who certainly is descended from David. That's part of it. He's got to actually be descended from David. But they're also expecting someone like David. And what does that mean? Well, it means brilliant battle strategist who will defeat our political enemies. It means uh, generous in public works. He'll bring peace, freedom, and economic thriving. And it means, oh, certainly a poet, a worshiper of God, a great man, but also a... Flawed, very flawed man. Uh, just a man. That's what's on their minds. I think that's the main reason Jesus never publicly used the title Christ for himself, because people just would not hear what he wants them to hear about who he truly is. And so Jesus said, "Why? Why do the scribes teach that? Why do they believe that about the Christ?" And then Jesus looks to Psalm one ten. It was agreed upon at the time that Psalm 110 was about the Christ. And by the way, Psalm 110 is the most referenced Old Testament text in the New Testament, 33 times. And you're about to see why. First, Jesus refers to the authorship of Psalm 110. Here's Mark 12, 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... Man, that's really short, but that's really rich. Who's the author of Psalm 110? Well, David, right? Human being, Israelite, wrote in Hebrew, had a reason. It's a human a human psalm. It's poetry, it's in real language, it's in a historical context. He wrote it. Oh, but who else wrote it? The Holy Spirit wrote it. He inspired what David Wrote The scriptures are human, but they're also divine. The scriptures are a library of books over hundreds and hundreds of years and all these authors, and there's also one book written by God himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus believes that. That's why we do. But then he points out a question. Did you see it? God, the Holy Spirit here in Psalm 110, is revealing to you a conversation God has had Let's look at it. The Lord said to my Lord. We re, we really got to slow down and think carefully. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord capital L capital O capital R capital D said to my Lord. There's three people in this sentence. Who are they? Number one, my my Lord. Who do you think that is? It's David. The Lord Yahweh said to my David, his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. The first one's David, the king of Israel. Who's the second one? The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In English, that's the word we use for Yahweh, right? The the covenant name of God who revealed himself in the scriptures. He saved his people in Exodus. We looked at Exodus 3 not long ago. He's the sufficient God. I am, that's his name, God. God. Yahweh, that's who we're talking about, the creator of heaven and earth. The Lord, Yahweh, David is saying. David's talking about the Lord saying to my Lord. Now here's, here, here, everybody's mind is blown. Who is this third person? Who can this possibly be? David's the king of Israel. Humanly speaking, he doesn't have any other lords. He's the king. So we can think of one, God. Okay, that works. Yahweh, David's Lord. Who is this third person? And did you see what Yahweh says? He calls him Lord. Hebrew, that's Adonai. Friends, in Hebrew, the title Adonai, Lord, is almost always used for God himself. Look at, here's one example, Psalm 8.1. O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yahweh, you are our Lord. Both titles used for God. You see that? This is different in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord. It's a third person. Father, Yahweh, David, who is the Adonai he's talking about? And look what Yahweh says to the Lord back in Mark 12. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. God is giving all authority to this person all authority. He's sitting him at his right hand. It's just, in the language of that day, that's all authority. He's king of kings. What is Jesus saying? Why, why do the scribes teach that the Messiah just be another David, a son of David, a man? Let's look at Psalm 110. What does Psalm 110 say? He has to be more than just a son of David. Who is he? Well, if you've been reading Mark with us, you ought to know. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, what did he tell us in the beginning? This, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the son of God. Jesus is saying, your own scriptures tell you what the Christ will be like. And you're rejecting me because you expect just the son of David who's going to be a king and bring... Bring a new economy and and win some political wars. You're not listening to your own scriptures. You should be looking for the Son of God. So who? So what is Jesus talking about at this point? This conversation about love has taken to a, has gone to a conversation about who he is. Why is that pertinent? What was the question at the last section? How do I get in the kingdom? And how does Jesus answer it? Look at me. Look at who I am. He, who He is, and what He came to do. That's how you get in the kingdom. That's why I call this second point the surprising authority. Nobody at that time expected the Christ to carry an authority like this. But Jesus says, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, the divine king, the one with all authority, that's me. And after his cross, his death, his resurrection, and ascension, it's true. That's where he sits now, isn't it, church? All authority. So we've seen the true authority God in his word, the surprising authority. Jesus is the divine king, the son of God, God in the flesh. But now you need to see loving authority. You know, you keep reading Mark, and soon the religious leaders are they're gonna get what they want, right? Just not the way they expected it. Judas is gonna betray Jesus and they'll have him crucified. But this was not just another well-meaning man running into the buzzsaw. Of tyranny. Was the crucifixion of Jesus an accident, or was it exactly what Jesus came to do? Look at Mark ten forty-five again. Mark ten forty-five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give His life as a ransom for many. Give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see how all this has to come together? You heard the claim, the call of love. A love too great and too strong for any of us. God is worthy of all-encompassing love. And we won't give it. Our neighbors deserve, in light of God, that we would love them as ourselves. And we won't do it. Even to understand that we ought to do it is not enough. And then Jesus says, look at me and look at what I came to do. He came to give his life as a ransom. And look at how his love overflows our lack of love. I mean, think of keeping the law. You'd be the most loving person ever, and that's Jesus. He always loved his Father in every possible way, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, every way, every day. He always loved his neighbor, even his enemy, even to the point of going to a cross. The Bible likes to talk about the love of Jesus in this way. Many of you, right, you, you would sacrifice for your family, people you love. You might even die for them. How many of you are going to sacrifice yourself for your enemy who hates you? That's what Jesus did for you. He lived a perfect life to represent you so that you could be righteous through faith in him. And he died on a cross for all the ways you would not love God or your neighbor. What? Love. John says it like this, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Seeing who Jesus is, what he's done for us on the cross, trusting ourselves to him, that's how you enter the kingdom. That's how you enter the kingdom. It's not that you would love, it's that you would be undeservingly loved, that you would know his love. You could never earn or deserve belonging to you through his life, death, and resurrection. And here's the thing, when you meet Jesus, right, this is going to happen, when you repent of your sin and put your faith in him, not only are you brought into his kingdom through his undeserved love, his love begins to change you. It begins to change you. Isn't it true? When you know Jesus, your love for God will grow, and you will want it to grow, and you will mourn over ways it doesn't grow. And you will want to love him, no matter the cost. And it will overwhelm you. I'm so thankful for this text this week because it's easy to get cold on love. I'm so thankful for this text asking me the question, in what aspects of my life am I not loving God with all that I am? And there are many. It was a good week for me to think when this thought pattern would come into mind or, or that temptation, love God. Love him, and then when I mess it up, be forgiven by the one who has loved me, and then love him. He'll also transform you to begin to love your neighbor to where your mind isn't only consumed with you anymore. You actually get out from under that tyranny, that slavery of self-consumption, and you see God, and you see others, and you have a desire to love them. You give them your attention, your actions, your mercy. He will change you so that you want to grow in loving your neighbor. But not only that, he will enable you to love your neighbor wisely. In the world we live in, nearly any deed you can imagine, someone calls it love. Someone calls it love. Nearly anything you can imagine, someone calls it love. And haven't we ourselves talked us into certain deeds, certain actions? Thought we had a reason for it? Even called it maybe love? Love for us, ourself? Love for something else? Who says what love is? What's pure love? What's true love? Look at First John 5. By this we know that we love the children of God. How do we know, church? When we love God and obey his commandments. I don't care what anybody says. If it doesn't obey the commandments out of love for God, guess what? It's not truly love. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. That's how you know you love, right? You don't see uh, when you when you fall in love. You don't see having a girlfriend as a great big straitjacket. And I got to hang out with her again on Friday. You're like, what can I do? You're you're leaning in. It's not a burden. To talk to that person or spend time with that person—that's the—that's the sign of love. How do you know you love God? His commands are not like, "Oh, it's a straight jacket." You're like, "No, what? I want to love you, God. I want to keep your commandments. I want to love my neighbor. I want to keep your commandments." It's a sign that God's love has changed you. You love Him. You love His word. So little is more important than this. What do you love? What should you love? And what are you going to do with the distance between those two things? And Jesus says the most important thing is to look at him. See who he is, the son of God, the son of David, the Christ, the authority on love. In his love, he came to save you from your lack of love and change you so that through faith in him, you'll grow in living out real love, biblical love for God and your neighbor. Let that be us, amen? Let's pray. Lord, your love is overwhelming. It's too much for us, confronts us, gets in our way, challenges us, but Lord, we thank you that you are the true authority and you're trustworthy and we can see your great love for us, undeserved love, that in you we can be safe to know that we're loved even though we are Far from perfect, we can know we are forgiven of our sins. We are accepted through the gift of your Son on our behalf. And so we pray, Lord, that our esteem for him would grow, that our love for you would grow, that our love for our neighbor would grow, that it would be biblical, it would be wise, it would be true, it would be Christ like, that the love that you have poured out on us through Christ would be evident in our lives for you and for one another. We pray this for your glory and for our joy. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.